Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Saturday, Dan. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Yeah, you're listening to the Repco Light Home Improvement Show, sponsored by Benjamin Moore. And we've got all kinds of stuff this week. We're going to be talking at the end of the show about the history of the electric drill. Uh-huh. And it is not boring. So <laughs> don't even think about going away. This is really good stuff. That The electric drill launched the DIY industry. Right. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in the story. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to be talking, you and I, Dan, just having a very candid conversation about renovation media, things like HGTV and all the blogs and Instagram and how maybe that's not having a great effect on people. Haley sent us an article that's basically saying it's making us sad and it's making our houses boring. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about what we think about that. There's some interesting stuff there. And basically, at the end, we're going to be helping, trying to help you make a, pal- a plan moving forward to maybe start using a little more color in your decorating. All we'll right. Get to that. Right now, though, we're going to play an interview that I recorded a few weeks ago when I was in Birmingham in the, on the east side of the state. Dan, you're not there. I'm not, unfortunately. So this is all going to be new to you, too. But I'm in the office at our Birmingham store, a tiny little space with Scott Hudgens. Scott, you're becoming a regular. Here I am. On the show, yeah. Scott's the manager of our Birmingham location. And yeah, Scott, I'm happy to be here again in your <laughs> office. This time, we're going to talk about doors. We're, we talked about doors the very first time you were on. We were talking yeah. about front doors, painting front doors, everything you needed to know, and not just painting. No. But staining, refin, all kinds of Everything. stuff front door related. I left and Scott said, you know what? Maybe we should talk about interior doors. Yeah, let's go inside. What about repairing them? What about replacing them? I mean, there's yeah. so many things that could go wrong or could be happening with an interior door. Scott, where do you want to go with this? So, you know, the thing is, is that we, you know, everyone's got a couple of doors in their home or, you know, I do anyway. That probably has seen uh, better days, uh, so that's really the key. So, so what we're trying to do is how how easy is it to re- repair those doors, mm-hmm. or should you just replace the door as a whole? Um, you know, and and so it's again, it's an easy thing to do. It just seems complicated, but it really isn't. And and if you're going to replace a whole door, if you're repairing, and obviously the painting of the surface as well. So let's talk about replacing a door. Yeah, give us some specifics so people can get in mind what kind of door we're we talking about. So does so it let, matter what kind of door we're talking it, it, about? It doesn't because I'm going to tell you what the good thing about replacing a door is is you know I I live in a home that's in that's was built in the 50s, so I got flat doors. I don't have anything fancy the plus to replacing a door is is not only to go ahead and, and maybe fix a broken door but also let's let's make it a little fancier let's get a solid door let may, maybe get a door that has a glass insert to it you know let's let's make it a little bit more decorative and that's really uh uh the big focus on on replacing a door is let's change it up now is that your deal at home uh, it, you want to <laughs> take it to another level it is because you know i got i got doors that have been there since we've moved in and 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 there's nothing really wrong with them. They're just so drab. So that's really the... the I've got a 1950s ranch, and I've got doors that have been there since it be- became a 1950s yeah. ranch. <laughs> they're very plain. They're yes. very boring. Yeah, let's let's get a solid door. Let's get a let's get a door with panels. Let's get uh, you know they got doors out there now that have like uh, uh, whether you you make it yourself or just buy them. They say yeah, I got a, a chalkboard on them on one side and and ones that have mirrors and and all this stuff. Let's let's change it up. Let's let's actually spruce up the inside of your so home. So walk us through the process at your house. You're going to okay. replace a couple doors. You're yes. picking something amazing, yes. probably gilded, yes. <laughs> gold all over the place, yes. and shiny stuff. The, you know, the thing is, is that uh, the good thing now than even before when I knew a while back about, about doors and replacing is now you can buy just the slab itself and you can buy the slab door that's already pre-cut with standard hinges and standard uh, uh, standard handle hole uh, and, and it's ready to go. You're literally taking off your old door if your frame is sound and there's nothing wrong with the frame and you just want to make that door a little bit more decorative, just get the slab door and it's already pre-cut for you. If it's not in stock at your local place, you can special order it and have it 
pre-cut where all those locations of the hinges and the holes are already done for you to make it really easy. If you find out that you have a frame issue where you have to replace a frame of a door as well because something's been damaged uh, uh, with the frame, going ahead and taking off the molding. Everyone's got molding surrounding their frames of their doors and you take off the molding and behind that molding you're going to see where the screws and the nails are at that are holding this frame in place so whether you're just unscrewing the frame or whether you're trying to take the nails out or whether you're getting a, a jigsaw or a sawzall and cutting through the nails whatever it is it's you'll be, you're going to be able to see all those spots and you'll be able to take that door off pretty easy um, then you actually get a door that has a whole new frame and everything and you're just putting it in now there's standard sizes for standard doors the best thing to do is to talk to your local professional about what size it is but of course measuring it it's it's pretty standard doors for standard things whether it be a bathroom or a, or a bedroom or, or even a utility closet and you shim those right to get everything make sure everything's tight. nice and tight and, and you, generally you're going to go ahead and shim behind uh, uh, the hinges and, and you and should also, see that you know, when you've pulled off the you're going to see exactly where the, the old shims were so it's like putting a puzzle back together it's it's really not difficult at all at that point it's just either reapplying the existing molding or or getting new molding and once again you can get molding kits that are already pre-cut to angles and everything for the miters and it's really easy to go ahead and, and apply on, on the inside and the outside of this door uh, make sure it's really important that you make sure that you get the appropriate swing uh, for the door so when you end up getting these doors make sure it's a right or a left side swing door make sure if it's got a swing out or swing in make sure you get that in line before you start putting this in place it's not like a refrigerator door no, no you can't right go that ahead you and can flip swap it. it and you can't bring a door back if it's got holes and and, and cuts already in it so is there very many things that you can bring back when it's got holes and cuts in it? I don't think so. I can't so. think of anything think that so somebody either. would say, oh, good. Oh, we'll perfect. put that back on the shelf. Yeah. As long as you got the receipt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This gallon of paint's empty. It came that way. I would like my one money back, please. Oh, my goodness. Do I have stories? Oh, I can imagine. All right. So that's replacing a door. Right. What about repairing a door? So repairing a door, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, all I know is I don't know the type of people that lived in my house before I got there. Were they crazy people? All I know is that there's there's some damage to the doors. So whether it be it's down because it looks like somebody kicked it or somebody punched, I don't know. All I know is that there is damage to the door. All right. So at that point, it's a hollow door. It's a it's a hollow door, and there's a there's a never big punch huge, a solid door. Um, no, not or unless kick. you don't realize it's a solid door. <laughs> All right. So you got a hole in the door, or or maybe probably not a hole. You're living with it, but it's it shows damage. Size. There's damage. What there's do you, damage. You could there. replace it. You could replace. That's something you could repair. About. Right. You can absolutely repair that. Um, you know, the good thing about that, too, is uh, is all you're doing is a uh, good thing about a, a hollow door is that a hollow door does have it's not perfect, but it does have like uh, if you've ever seen the inside of a hollow door, it's got cardboard slats in it. Mm -hmm. OK, and it tries to keep everything all nice and, and sturdy. Well, when you put a dent in a door, whether from a fist or something else, um, the whole thing is, is um, you're literally going ahead and making sure there's no loose pieces there. Um, in most cases, there's probably not. It just looks not terrific and then uh then you're going to go ahead and you're going to do every prep that you would normally use when you're replacing uh, a, a damaged uh, dent or, or or a chunk out of a wood surface in general so you're going to go ahead and you're going to make sure you clean and you're going to make sure you sand down that area get all the loose off as much as you can if there's still um part of the door there keep it there it doesn't have to come off um if it seems like everything is still kind of sturdy and you're just going to patch it you're going to use and if you're painting it you can it, it the sky's the limit but then they you have uh, elmer's uh you know a, a wood patch and wood repair putties and things that you can do that are stainable uh if you need to try and repair it with the putties and then go ahead and restain over to the try thing with those it. putties they're stainable i'm sure you've run into this plenty of times sure. they, they will take a stain yes that doesn't mean that they're going to take the stain in the, the same. same color that the wood would. Right. And so there's always going to be those little struggles. By all means, if you're painting it, you're miles ahead. That's right. Uh, uh, if, you've, if you've got a stained situation that you're trying to repair, you might want to consider just replacing that door if, if you need that stained look. Yes, unless or at it's least a, be aware that that's a possibility. <laughs> unless, unless it's uh, you know, listen, I I just don't have the money. We just gotta at least make this look somewhat decent. Right, 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 right. No, that's <laughs> yeah. that's definitely yeah. true. It's just you want 
you want everybody to have an understanding of what they're going to end up with because right. I know those putties are deceptive. I don't. They're not intentionally deceptive. No, but no, no. People no. misread. That's right. And misunderstand what they're getting. There's a lot involved in it. I mean, you know, it's it's no different than trying to make a uh, a surface uh, that is not a wood surface look like wood. There's a lot you can do it. There's just a lot involved in doing it. But yeah. So let's say I get it all sanded up. I'm going to putty it. Would, would you have me prime it first? Would you have me just go straight to I the... like No, I like priming first. If you're painting it, let's let's prime. Prime, patch, prime. That's that's my... So all, prime my before thing. my patch, put my patch on, and, and prime again. work it until I've got it smooth, that's do my right. sanding, prime it again, and then hit it with my finished paint. That's right. And at that point, I mean, it's, it should be nothing. I mean, you know, you're just going to sand it down, make it all nice and smooth. It's really not difficult to do. Uh, and again, painting it, like you had said, is, is going to be a lot easier than trying to match a stain, uh, especially one from a 1950s door. Oh, man, yeah, with the the yellowing of the varnishes <laughs> and stuff right. like that. That's so always much tricky. Involved. It's always right. tricky. When it comes to finished paint, really, there's a lot of options out there. Where would you go with that? What's your favorite thing to use? Well, Advance is beautiful. Oh, of course. Advance, you know, that's that's got to be uh, number one. But there's a product called ScuffX out there. Works very well. And I know that our listeners are probably very familiar with ScuffX. Uh, ScuffX is, is a product that is uh, just blown up as far as a great door and trim paint. Um, and and durable, uh, durable like crazy, man. It, it really is. It's by far becoming one of our best uh, trim paint sellers right now. It's almost a magical product. We've talked about it plenty of times on the show because of that it's one of those that the story behind scuffx or the story of scuffx seems ridiculous but yet it really does what they say it will it will resist scuffing unlike anything else we've ever seen oh yeah and like you said it blew up in areas that it wasn't even meant to be used in originally contractors started trying it in different places because they loved it on walls and it really held up to all kinds of traffic and wear let's see what it does on doors and let's see what it does on trim and it's just, it's blown up, like it's you a, said. It's a big sign where, you know, you, you listen to the painters and you listen to the contractors that are out there because, you know, they, they do things with some of these products that, that we may have not even thought of. And and when it becomes a popular item like that for that type of purpose, it's like, oh my never even knew about that so so it's it's just a key to to listen to the contractors they're going to know uh uh, just as much about other things that that you can you can even start to even imagine right no absolutely scott what are you going to do with your door you've talked about both options yes which one are you choosing um you know i I think we're going to go ahead and replace our door uh, right. We're, we're going to replace our door because because uh, it just needs to have a brand new overhaul. And, so and now, does that mean how many doors are you replacing all the doors through the entire interior? I think is I, this a process? It's 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 going to be a process uh, because money is a, is an issue, so it's going to be a process. But with that being said, the uh, yeah, yeah, you got to right. I mean, if you're in a hallway and you have doors that are all flat, and you're going to replace one and make it a panel door, you kind of got to make all the other ones panel doors. Yeah, so, unless you want to live in some kind of Harry Potter type. <laughs> that's right. Experience. The Winchester home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but it can be done over time, and you yeah. work your way through it, and. Yeah. It's all benefit down the road. I mean, you're it you're is. adding value to the home, and you're going to love the space more. You know, it just feels and better. The key is is that whether you're replacing a door, or repairing a door, they're going to still end up coming to our store <laughs> because <laughs> they're still going to need. You're still going to need the patch. You're still going to need the paint. Uh, whether you're buying a brand new door or not, in most cases, you're still painting those brand new doors. So uh, by all means, stop on by. And, yeah, and, and we'll walk you out. through all of it. We can help Absolutely. you with stain colors, stain matches. And like Scott said, all the paint that you would could ever want. Yes. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about HGTV, renovation media, and some surefire steps you can take to add some life to your decorating. That's all next. Stay tuned. We're back. You're listening to the Repco Light Home Improvement Show, sponsored by Benjamin Moore. And Dan, let's solve decorating problems for people. Okay. But first, let's identify some problems. Haley sent us an article, and I'm really not sure what to do with this. I'm not sure if it's because she's listening to what we're doing while she's on Not approving. <laughs> yeah, and is giving us little Cringing. nudges about things that we should talk about. But she sent me an article, and the article is entitled, HGTV is making our homes boring and us sad. And I'm going to give you a very quick summary of the concept of the article And then we're going to just kind of jump off and have a conversation from there. And I don't even know if we're going to have a conversation about what's in the article. Okay. Right. The article caused the conversation, 
but I don't know if we're going to address it. The article is this. A couple of researchers found that home renovation media is leading and making homeowners, or encouraging us at least, to decorate for the masses and not for our own happiness. All right. So the idea is that the renovation media mentality, when we watch shows, HGTV or whatever, they all start with an expert going through your home and pointing out all the problems. Or maybe the homeowners are pointing out all the things they hate about their homes. Right. All these things that have to change. And so as viewers, first off, we're training ourselves to look at our own homes. That's what the article is saying. In a Critically. critical manner. And we're also getting in the, the mindset that everybody who comes through our home is looking mm, at it in the same us. critical manner, right? And these shows, you know, besides pushing that point and that agenda, they're also uh, stressing this whole idea and focus on creating value for resale. Right. And a lot of these places, that's the whole point. I'm flipping a house or whatever. And so the colors I choose, everything I do is built around resale value. And it gets in our heads. And even people, the article has got plenty of anecdotal evidence, and we all know how valuable that can be. It's good, but it's not definitive. But lots of anecdotal evidence that talks about people who have no intention of moving ever, but they're still decorating their home with this in the back of their mind that, boy, if I put a crazy color there, a new buyer might not like it. Right. It may reduce the value of my home. Right. So that's the point of the article. And what what they're making the argument or the case is that we're ending up being a little sad. We're not having fun decorating. We're decorating for other people. Yeah. We made that case. So the decorating isn't fun. And also the homes are boring because they're all becoming standardized. We're seeing lots of the same colors everywhere because we just want it nice and resellable. That's the idea. How does this play out in your life, Dan? Does this <laughs> is this do you feel that at your home? Do you sense that? Yeah. Are you boring with your decor? Uh, I would say, yeah. There's times where the uh, the consensus opinion has to take precedence over my personal... The consensus <laughs> of your family? Yes. But it's just your family. Correct. Not your father or mom right. or sisters. For me, that's not a thing. Yeah. For other members of the family, it might be more of a thing. But Well, yeah. and that's where I run into a little bit of a problem. Previously, I would always put things together, but then I'm looking at it from somebody else's point of view. Like the article says, I'm assuming people are going to critique what I've done and I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that embarrassing conversation. So really, I don't know how it, how it is for everybody out there listening, but I guess think about it. Ask yourself that question. Is your home uniquely inspired by you and your family or isn't it? Is it designed around somebody else's ideas and concepts and yeah, you know, resale. The, right. And all of those things. And if it's not built around you, if you're not designing and decorating for you and your family, why not? Right. And I started thinking about this. And I, now we're kind of away from the article, but we're still drawing some of the points from it. There's a number of reasons, uh, lots of reasons why we might not decorate for us. We've got a few that we picked and we want to focus on. The first one is fear. And basically, we're talking about a lot of different things here with fear. The fear of being judged. Fear of wasting money, you know, investing in something, but now the resale value isn't there, that kind of thing. It could be just fear of, well, I guess that's pretty much it, isn't fear it? Fear of making a bad choice. Oh, man. I live with that fear on a regular basis. <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I just wonder what bad choices am I going to make today? <laughs> so imagine when I'm decorating. So fear is a big problem. Well, mm -hmm. how do you work around it? Well, we don't have a lot of time on this segment to get started with it. We're going to tackle that on the other side. We're going to pause right now. I hate to do that, but there's no other way to work around the clock. Right. Got a hard break that I've got to meet. Got to do it. Talk. So we're going to take a break right now. West Side listeners, you're going to get news and weather at the bottom of the hour. East Side listeners, you're going to get a Repco Light Rewind. And when we all get back together, we're going to solve all your problems with decorating. <laughs> That's all next. Stick around. You're listening to the Repcolite Home Improvement Show, sponsored by Benjamin Moore on 106.7 Detroit's Wheels. And right now it's time for another Repcolite Rewind, where we check out great segments from past episodes. Now this time, we're going way back to September of 2019, and we're going to talk about the invention that kick-started the entire DIY painting industry. Betsy, if you had to name inventions that were completely revolutionary, <laughs> what would some be? The wheel. Well, the wheel. Yes. <laughs> That's a good one. That's the first one that comes to most we, people's mind. Yeah, I we think. don't get anywhere, literally, no, without that. Because you even needed those when horses were pulling your buggy. Right, right. 
Yeah. So somebody somewhere. Uh-huh. Hey, look at this. It rolls. That's right. pretty cool. We wouldn't have rolling pins without the wheel. Right. And then we wouldn't have pizza. Well, well we could because we could The Greeks, it. the Romans, all of them had wheels. Yeah. They all needed wheels. Well, congratulations. You got a good one. I was thinking printing right. press. Yeah. That's uh, always a big one for the people. The computer. Yeah, nowadays. What would we do without computers? (laughs) YouTube. I remember the days without computers. YouTube. What would children do? I don't know what my kids would do if YouTube had not been invented. What would the DIY world do without YouTube? Let's face it. Okay, so you're getting into that. So let's talk about what we wanted to really dig into on this. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the most, one of the most, I guess you can't say the most, it could be. It's one of the most revolutionary inventions for the DIY world, and it's yeah. the roller cover. And yeah. let's make the case for that. And it's a very sad story, so it's it's going to win all Get the way around. Get your tissues out. You're going to need them. <laughs> right. So you've got the roller cover. It's yeah. a really basic common tool, and we don't really think about it. But it completely did, like we're saying, revolutioned. It almost created the DIY industry, at least well, when it came right. to home decorating and the work that we commonly do now yeah, because really wasn't done before well, by homeowners. Before the roller cover came into play, the way paint was applied was with a brush. And we actually have some of these brushes mm-hmm. from painters back in, you know... Back in the, the day? Yeah, before they're the huge. roller cover. They're huge, they're heavy, and it took a lot of skill to put paint on a wall or a ceiling so that it looked smooth when it was done. I mean, mm-hmm. we well, we stumbled across a video yeah, where they're actually talk about that. sending people... It's a video from 1945. Yeah, where they send guys to school to learn how to apply paint properly, and all the video is... They're using a brush. And on everything. Ceilings, walls, everything is a brush. Those guys had to be like Popeye because yeah. that brush is so big and so heavy. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what it was. It was very skilled and it yeah. was very much relegated to mm-hmm. a trade. Painter, yeah. you would bring in a painter to do that. Not right. as many people would do this on their own. Yeah. And then along comes the roller cover in 1940. And all of a sudden, it made it a lot easier for people to get really acceptable to great paint results on their own. Yeah, and that did not make uh, some of these contractors happy. Contractor unions were unhappy. Yeah, because all of the work was being taken over by the homeowners. I mean, suddenly they didn't need to hire someone. A chunk of it, and they felt like the skill was going out of the trade. Right, and so the unions actually fought against the rollers. Mm -hmm. So painter unions didn't want to use rollers, or at least an element within there. There was this this battle, and eventually the pro roller contractors won out right and they could use them but anyway the reason that we think it was such a big invention for the diy world is Mm -hmm. that it really put all of this in everybody's hands now everybody could paint their own home start dabbling with decorating and all of that right what makes it a sad story well, it's really, you think when someone invents something that they're going to become really rich and famous that off of it? That is the dream. Like, my brother-in-law wants to invent a toilet seat <laughs> that you push a little <laughs> lever like those little garbage cans. Oh, and yeah. And the lid goes yeah. up, and then uh-huh. you step off and it goes down. Right. I think it's been invented now, but he had yes, that idea a long one. time ago. Uh-huh. It's going to make it rich. Well, the thing is, the guy who actually invented the roller cover doesn't even get credit for it. Most people have never even heard of him. Someone else gets the credit for his invention. We don't even know how to say his name, how to pronounce it. I believe it's Brakey. His his first name is Norman, so maybe we'll just call him Norman. Norman Brakey, as in heartbreaky. Yes. (laughs) This is a very heartbreaky story. It could be Brakey, but we're going to go with (laughs) Brakey. Right. But anyway, he was born in 1890 in Chicago. Yes. At least... That's what we seem to uncover. The Uh general idea is that he was born in Canada. Yes. But we found other evidence that seems to really seal the deal that he was born in Chicago. So he's American born. But he moved to Manitoba and then later to Toronto and spent most of his life in Canada. Right. So then in 1940, he gets this inspiration and he decides that maybe he could invent something to help the painters. You know, it seems... Why are you up there brushing all these things? There's well, got to be a way to make something that can apply it but even that more evenly. Is a supposition. You're making a guess. We don't even know why he made it. We don't know if it was for his own sake right. that he decided this is maybe quicker, or if he was trying to revolutionize else. an industry. Right. We don't know. Like with the tape one that we talked about, the masking tape. We knew the origin of that. The right. reason the need was there. 
and we know the circumstances. Right. We know nothing. Yeah. We just know that he came up with this idea of a cylindrical core mm-hmm. with a fabric cover that right. would soak up and distribute the paint when rolled over a smooth surface. Right. So he brings all these drawings and stuff and files for a patent with the patent office in Ottawa, Canada. Mm-hmm. Now they evaluate it and they grant him, at least according to a lot of the documents that we dug into, they grant him a patent, which is important because a lot of places will say he never filed for a patent. Right. But it looks like he actually did and he got it. Right. And that was basically the high point of this whole experience for him mm-hmm. because everything from there is downhill. Because yes. now he's got this patent and so he goes to start creating prototypes mm-hmm. and Betsy found a great quote. It's long, but we're going to read it. It is long. It was from the Globe and Mail in 1984 and there's a gentleman named Tom Hamilton from AB. I don't know what that is. Saya? Saya? Yeah, we're guessing. We're guessing. It doesn't matter. Um, Anyway, he recalled, Norman was a white-haired gent who was full of purpose. He wanted my opinion on the best kind of fabric that offered a stiff, bristly nap. I asked for what purpose, and he said, for rolling paint. I scratched my head, but he resolutely went on and described to me something with a handle shaped like a seven that would hold a cardboard fabric-covered cylinder. If my theory is right, this thing will revolutionize painting in Canada, he said. Well, the best thing I could think of was that bristly green mohair velour that was used to cover railway touring coaches in those days. So I sold him a bolt of that. Later, he came by and thanked me for my advice. He gave me one of his original roller covers and a tray that had been hammered out by a local tinsmith. Neither of us knew how big his invention would get to be. Right. That's Tom Hamilton, the guy who sold Norman Brakey the first fabric to use on his prototype covers. Yes. And from there, everything seemed perfect. But... Right. The obstacles started to mount almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Norman couldn't find anybody to back this invention. He needed right. investors to get on board and to give him the money so he could make enough of these to actually make it work. And right. he couldn't sell it to anybody. Right. So whether he was a terrible salesperson or they just could not catch the vision, we'll never really know. Mm-hmm. But it never happened. But that was just one side of his difficulties. The next side came up when his patent was contested. Yeah, an American, Richard Croxton Adams, descended from the presidential Adams, claimed that he invented the roller cover in his basement that exact same year. And it suggested that he kind of tweaked Brakey's idea a little bit and actually contested the patent. Right. So he takes his idea. Mm-hmm makes a few changes, presents it as his own, right. and now there's a contested patent. And so the problem that happened is that Brakey didn't have the money to uh-huh. go and actually fight this. So he right. had to just give it up, and the patent goes to Adams. Richard Croxton Adams, uh-huh. and from there, the rest is history. He is credited, yeah. at least in writing, as yep. the creator of the roller cover. But sadly, there's very little recognition for this DIY visionary, Norman Brakey, who died... Very poor. Yeah. And with nobody really knowing what he did. That's okay. We have just informed a lot of people about what he did. And we've made all the descendants of Richard Croxton Adams angry in the process. (laughs) Yes. I want to say it was suggested by some people that he copied the idea. Of course, there's another group that say that's not so. Well, of course, there's always two sides to every story. And that'll do it for this week's RepcoLite Rewind. If you want to check out the full episode or others like it, just head to RepcoLite.com and then click the On the Radio tab right on the homepage. That's R-E-P-C-O-L-I-T-E.com. Click that On the Radio tab right on the homepage. Now, all right, it's time to take a break. When we come back, we'll be continuing our discussion about how to work through fear and other obstacles when you're decorating your home. That's all next. Stick around. And we're back. You're listening to the Repcolite Home Improvement Show, sponsored by Benjamin Moore. And we are solving decorating problems. Right, Dan? Right. And probably life problems, too. I hope. Maybe. Yeah, I hope so. certain. Certain (laughs) of the fact that we're solving some problems. We started last segment, you know, I hate breaking these in halves, but we just didn't have the time to tackle this all in one single segment. But we talked about the whole idea that sometimes a lot of us don't decorate our homes for us. You know, we don't decorate it for us or our family. We decorate it at least with other people in mind. And those people who don't live in the space with us actually have more input than they should have. Right. They're in our heads. They're in our heads. They're taking up space there. Living rent-free, right? Yes. Isn't that how that works? <laughs> and it's really important and really fun. If you want to add some fun, and decorating your home should be fun. That really should be a great yeah. uh, project and 
what, not even a project, a hobby. Right. To spend a ton of time doing. And yet it's stressful for a lot of people. So why is that? Why is it stressful? Well, one of the things we talked about it at the end of last segment, fear. Fear of being judged by others, fear of wasting money, fear of ruining something, like we said. You know, your home's a big investment. What if you do something that affects the resale value? How do you work around this fear? Well, there's all kinds of different things you can do, but we've got just a few simple practical things. First off, start small. If you're not used to working with color, and that's largely what we're talking about in solving problems. We're helping you work through and bring more color into your decorating. Start small. If you haven't worked with color a lot in the past, Bring in color with uh, accessories, things like that. Throw pillows or... Put down a cool rug. Put down a cool... All of these things, you can bring in some color that way. Get a feel for what color is going to do. See the value of having color. Find out which colors you really like without any big commitment. I mean, it's not rocket science, but that's a good place to start. Sample, sample, sample. That's another thing to make sure you're doing... And we talk about it on the show all the time, but sampling your colors when you're making a jump and not just a big jump. You know, if you're making a big jump in colors, by all means, you've got to make sure you're sampling. But really, if you're making any kind of jump, sample those colors. Get a feel for what they're going to look like. You can get Benjamin Moore samples, $5.99 each. So narrow down your color choices. Maybe you've got three or four different colors you're thinking. It's a relatively small investment to get the colors and actually see it. On your wall or in your space. In your space. With, with your lighting. Exactly. And it's going to give you confidence moving forward and help you get over that fear. Now, another way to get over fear is, and this one's, it's not an easy battle, but be reasonable. What? You know? I can't do that. Be reasonable, Dan. No, <laughs> no. You're, you're probably more reasonable than me. I <laughs> am an overreactor, but you've got to be reasonable. Talk to yourself in a positive manner. Are you moving? Do you have plans to move? In the article, they talk about how so many people lived in spaces because they were convinced that they don't want to do anything with the color because it might affect resale value. One lady in the article that we referenced talked about how she had no intention of moving or she didn't move for six years. I can't remember which. And she regretted the fact that she lived in a white space, white walls everywhere, because she didn't want to affect the resale value. She missed out on enjoying that space to its fullest. For six years. So worried about moving when that really wasn't a prime objective of hers. All right. So really think about it. If you're not planning on moving, enjoy your space a little bit. Repainting is simple. Even if you bring in a bunch of color and need to change it in six years, Aura from Benjamin Moore, Optima from Repcolite, both of those cover and hide ridiculously well. Right. So you can cover over even crazy colors with just a couple coats and get that room looking great for resale, but at least you've enjoyed it along the way. So think about that. Be reasonable. And also remember, it's your space. It's not your mom's space, unless she lives there too. Uh, it's not your sister's <laughs> right. space. That's my thing. I worry about what other people are going to think when they come through. I finally got over that. And let me tell you, it's so much fun filling our home with ridiculous paraphernalia. We find the most ridiculous things and put it on display proudly. People come, snicker, and leave, but we love it. My that daughter's Hanson Museum. Yes, oh. my daughter has got post-it notes on all the things she wants when I die. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of open conversations at our house. <laughs> anyway, have fun with it. Fear is front-loaded. Its biggest push is before you jump into something. Yeah, I think that's really good and helpful to keep that in mind. If you can power into something, start using a little bit of color, the fear is going to start to go away. Its big push is trying to stop you. Don't let it. So that's fear. Now, another reason we struggle to use color and all of that in our decorating and really branch out is we really don't know what we want. Well, how in the world, if you're struggling with that, do you figure out what you want? Well, one really great idea, I I ran into an article. It was called Scared of Too Much Color. And the big takeaway from the article is this. It's a little touchy-feely, but ask yourself how certain colors make you feel. You need to Be aware of some of these things. Ask about this stuff in your own head. A little introspection. Yes. The author talks about how she moved into an apartment that was buttery yellow everywhere, and she planned on getting rid of it right away. But she found out in in the first couple of weeks of living there, coming home during rainy days or wintry weather, she loved that space. It made her feel great. She realized that yellow was something she wanted, and she carried it through other homes as she moved on and bought other things as she went. She figured out what colors did for her, and she brought those colors in. Think about this. Last little thing that we've got time for. If you ask yourself what colors make you happiest, how many of us answer beige or gray? And yet we fill our homes with those colors. 
Find out what makes you happy and start using those colors. Sample, do all of those things. All right, that's all the time we've got for this on air. We're going to keep talking about this and air it in the podcast. But right now, we've got to take a break. When we come back, we'll dig into the history of the electric drill. That's all just ahead. Stay tuned. All right, Dan. So we're going to keep talking for everybody who listens on the podcast. All right. We talked about asking yourself how colors make you feel, which colors make you happiest. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Does that make, I mean, is that? It I'm makes sense. You, yeah, it, right. Yeah. No, I think it totally makes sense. Um, I gravitate towards certain colors. What colors do you gravitate towards? Um, greeny blues, bluey greens. And you know that. You're aware of that, obviously, because you just said yeah, that. Yeah. Like, if you'd open my closet, there'd be a lot of those colors in there. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't... I, it does. It's not like it, uh, there's a connection that I say, oh, that looks good. Right. It's no. a subliminal thing. Right. And I think uh, we all have it. There's yeah. something that we all are drawn to. There's spaces we love more than others, colors of cars we love more than others, but we don't always realize it. We're not thinking about it. We're just, I don't like that. And I like this. We never dig into the why part of things. Right. So being aware of that, asking those questions, like you said, a little introspection, I think is really important. I loved the quote about, you know, if you asked yourself, what is your favorite color? How many of us are literally going to say beige or or gray? (laughs) And yet I think about my house, there's a lot of those kinds of tones in there because it's what I feel like everybody uses. It feels very safe, all of these right. things. It'll go with everything. I don't have to worry about offending anyone. And yet, really, how much fun am I having? Not Not much. having as much fun as I should be having. And believe me, I believe I should be having as much fun as <laughs> You should be having possible. more fun. More fun There's than no I'm doubt having. About it. That's for sure. So one thing is just ask yourself that question. That's one way to help yourself start figuring out what you like. And I know that's kind of nebulous. It's hard to pin that one down exactly. But once you find it, you'll be glad you did. Another way that's maybe more practical, and I love talking about this. I've talked about it on the show multiple times. I think it's one of my two or three really, really good ideas that I've had. <laughs> I've had ideas that are okay, but then there's a couple that are really good. One or two of them. One or two of them <laughs> that are gold. Take them to the bank. I wish I could make money from them. A color and design folder. You've got to yeah. have a color and design folder. And if this could be a digital thing. It could be a you know hard copy paper Item, But basically what what I'm talking about is a literal folder, an accordion folder, a manila folder, a manila envelope, someplace, a shoebox. I don't care what it is. I'm not picky. It's America. (laughs) Find something to put stuff in and put stuff in it. And what you're filling it with are all the little things that you collect over the course of a year that you really like. I'm not talking about like belly button lint and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about inspiration for your home. We all find articles that we love. You know, and a lot of the times it's digital, it's online. And yeah. that's where it's nice to have an online place to store these things as well. You know, a Pinterest board, something along those lines. But save these articles, save these photos. pictures. Photos from magazines, rip them out, put that article in this little folder. This is a, a kitchen color that I really like. Or this, you know, you go to the stores and... Mom would do this all the time. Anytime she was at a store with color chips, she'd come home with fistfuls of color chips and, you know, thinking about that next project. And this would be a great place to store those because these are things that catch our interest. They catch our eye. Now, does that mean that we love them? We don't know yet. You know, right. hang on to them. There's in this Something little... about this. Right. Something about this appealed to me. So you put it in this folder. Now, this is not groundbreaking. This is not the brilliant idea part of this. This is just a good start. The brilliant idea, the part that makes this valuable is the weeding of this folder. And that means like every month, every couple of months, depending on how often you're putting stuff in there, you need to sit at the table, a little cup of coffee, whatever you need, a little Andy Griffith playing on the cup of <laughs> And you go through uh-huh. this folder and you get rid of or move things to other out- sections of the folder that you don't love as much anymore. Right. Not that's, sure about this. That's where the money this is. Back. All what if you do this on a religious? Well, you don't have to do this religiously. There's, there's no. I already have a aspect. religion. Man. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to stick with it. You don't need a new one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So do this with the same fervor. No, that's that's even messed up. Religion should do it be, with intent. Do it. With How about really good intentions? <laughs> right. And if you do that, what you're going to end up with are really the colors that you like. It's like sifting. It's like panning for gold. You're going to get rid of all the dross, all the stuff that you don't 
really like, the stuff that caught your eye but didn't have staying power. It, the trends are going to be filtered out. Or you're going to find that certain trends really Really spoke to power. you, yeah. Right, because they will stay in that folder. I've done this, and I, I've joked on the show over and over again about a lime green that I was going to paint my kitchens. And because it was really popular in the 90s, I remember when all these bold colors came out and I was just, oh, look at this. It's going to be crazy. I'm going to do it. And thankfully, I never did because as time went by and I reassessed my choices, reassessed my life decisions when color, I realized I don't like any of these things. They have zero staying power. And yet so many people power right in right away. They try new things. You know, and they end up making mistakes. <laughs> When you mentioned that to me, the immediate thing that I thought of is we have a new front door here at the studio. Yeah. You know what color the old front door was? Kind of a greeny color. Lime green. Yeah, yeah, it was. Guess what color the new front door is Is it going to be, be lime green as well? Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't mind it on the door. I hated it in my kitchen, and the lime green I had was like an electric lime green. Yeah, this is more muted, but still- it's if you, you know, don't it speaks to me, Dan. And that's the I'm thing. That's, keeping the green. That's the whole point. <laughs> it's your place and you get to make that call. If you don't know what you want, that folder is a great place to start. You yeah. will have an answer. If you've got a project coming up in the next two months, next month, next week, for sure, if you've got a project coming up in a year, start that folder now because by the time you get ready to go, you're going to have colors that are really going to help you speed the process along. You're going to realize where you want to go. You may not have specific colors, you know, this blue, that green, that yellow, whatever, but you might, you're going to know, I love blue. I love tans and I love these natural greens. These earthy tones are my thing. You know, that's my jam or whatever the case. It's okay. Are. That can be beige too, right? I mean, oh, that's right. If you want to be wrong, yeah. <laughs> no judgment. That's the whole point of this. You just judged me. Yeah. I... <laughs> It was for fun. One of my fun. favorite colors is beige. Well, that's fine. <laughs> if that's the best you can do, that's all right. <laughs> anyway, that's how you start to figure out what you like. Those are just a couple of ideas. Another reason we don't jump into projects and, and really you know, change the colors and, and just go crazy in our homes is because money's tight, right? Yeah. The economy's slowing down a bit right now. We're all feeling it. Groceries. Got to be a little careful about how you're spending your dollar. Yeah, we're not eating real steak anymore. That's for sure. Well, we're not even eating real ramen noodles anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what are you eating? Floor sweepings. Okay. Yeah, wood shavings. They're if pretty they're good if you right. put enough salt on them. No, it's really frustrating. <laughs> and so a lot of us, we you know, we all shy away from the things that are deemed non-essential. Right. And I completely get that. And everybody's got their budget and everybody's got to make that choice. And we are making that choice. If it's eat or paint a room in your house, of course, you paint. Right? <laughs> We're Americans. Uh, we right. lose some pounds. Right, right. That's how it works. No, you got to make your own choice. But one thing to remember, and, and this isn't just us talking, it's experts everywhere, design, interior design experts, anybody in this field will tell you that the biggest bang for your buck to change a space is to paint it. You know, you're oh, yeah. Inexpensive comparatively. And the turnaround and what a, what it's going to do to a room, the right color in a room, has more impact than anything else. And when you think about it, it's logical. There's more wall space in your room. More surface area. Than there is anything else. Sure. Right? And if you get the right color on the walls, that whole space can feel great. And when our spaces feel great... Then that, we feel great. We really tend to feel a lot better. Yeah. You know, we don't see work that needs to be done. We don't see colors that we hate. We see something that makes us feel like home. Like the lady that we talked about who had the buttery yellow. Yeah. She comes home to her apartment and feels like she's arrived somewhere calming, somewhere right. pleasant. And that's what color can do. If you've got that color going on in your home already, cool. good for you. That's great. If you don't, you can get there and it's not an expensive undertaking. One last thing. And I struggle with this one. I don't even know what it's called. I'm calling it the it's okay as it is syndrome. That'll do. The that, that'll do. That'll do. That that works as well. That's why I haven't made a lot of changes. That's one of my reasons. Fear is a part of it. All the other things we talked about are part of my problem. <laughs> so many <laughs> facets to my problem. You don't have enough time no. in this endless I, podcast to talk about that. I talk about my problem with a capital P, you know, and an R and an O. It's the problem. Anyway, part of my problem with decorating is the it's okay as it is, the that'll do syndrome. I moved into the house and it was livable and I was so happy about that. The house is oh. livable. I don't have to make a lot of changes. 
And that what was a relief. Really, what a relief. That was really nice. The downside is I am still living eight years, nine years later. I've changed one area that I that two areas now that I've made a big change in color wise. But the rest of the house, the bulk of the house is exactly the vision of the previous owners. Uh-huh. It's, I'm surprised. I'm tired, Dan. <laughs> the radio takes it out of me. Uh-huh. All you my know, overreacting and did you just end up life. saying this is the easiest thing, least expensive thing you can do? Spend an afternoon, paint a wall, Dan. Good grief. It's what I say, Dan. It's not what I <laughs> do. I struggle too. I get it. You know, it's right. time. It's all of those things. Yeah. I'm not happy with my decision. This really bothers me because the kids have rooms that were designed for some other kid who's probably not as cool. No, for sure not. As, no, no, not, it's not for sure. It's not for sure. <laughs> I know my kids. I know their limits. There are cooler kids. Right. They may no. have lived in that house. <laughs> <laughs> there are no cooler kids out there except your kids, everybody. Oh, my kids. You're talking about my kids. Everybody yeah, right. They're pretty cool. has cool kids. But my kids aren't getting a room that's built for them or that's decorated for them. And I think that's really important. That's really kind of a bit of a sad thing. It's livable and doable, but it doesn't have their spin on it. And eventually, in the next few years already, they're going to be moving on with other aspects of their life. And they always had somebody else's room, kind of, to right. an extent. Or the living room that I'm in. It does not have my personal <laughs> touch on it. Now, maybe that's good. I don't know. But it's it keeps somebody else's visitors vision. from, you know, running away. <laughs> right. And that's sad. I've lived with it. The thing is, you know, this is my sanctuary. It's my place. You know, whatever you want to call it. My haven. I know that sounds a little silly, but it's real. Yeah, no, This is where I sure. spend my time. This is where I hang Your out. Refuge. This is where the magic in my life happens. And it's really, I'm living in somebody else's vision somebody else's place you gotta do something about that. i know i got to i've got to i've got to break out of this it's okay as it is syndrome and jump in to some of these projects and like you said I, i've told it i've said it just said it in the last little chunk that we talked about painting is not a big project i mean really right. doing a room half a day yeah at that you know, and you'll have it back together again the way paint's drying out right you can do all of that a couple gallons of paint and a few hours worth of work. You need your tools and stuff like that. If you go with a plan, you can approach it and get it done very quickly, you know, and make a tremendous change. And if you've done the other things that we would talk about, which I think is what hangs me up as well, my fear of picking the wrong color, doing all that work and ending up with the wrong color. If I do the sampling, if I do all of those things ahead of time, if I'm making my folder and updating my little color folder, I'm finding the colors that I resonate towards, so now you're, I'm not looking erasing at- Erasing the fear. I'm erasing the fear. I'm erasing my obstacles. I'm not looking at yes. 3,000 colors when I walk into the paint store. I know I need to look at the blues that are kind of muted and some of the muted greens because my color folders help me get there. I sample those colors. And then when I actually do the work, I've turned that space into something that's my space now. I think the paradox of choice is another thing, right? Like there's so, like you said, so many color chips to choose from, 3,000 colors. Mm-hmm. Um, how can anybody choose when there's 3,000 colors? Well, we can't, and we You have it. to narrow it down. We always, In the store, when I work the store, we always called it the paralysis of choice or yeah. something like that. You're just stuck. At, we'd watch people just stuck at yeah. the color display, and you try to help them and try to you know get a direction going. But if you don't have a, an idea where you want to go, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And when I've gone to paint things in my own home— I find I'm in the exact same boat because I think a lot of us don't do that planning part. You know, when we're getting ready to tackle a project, we plan a lot of things out. We'll scope out, well, a lot of us scope out color. I think it's probably a mixed bag. There's probably no one or the other is the biggest thing. But I do see a ton of people in the store who want to paint this weekend. You know, that's when the project right. dawns. Yeah. And now we're starting the whole process at that the point. The thought process starts when they walk in the door. That's where it breaks down. If you've planned out ahead of time, you can move through it pretty easily and deal with that paradox of choice or whatever you want to call it. But if you haven't planned, really, really stuck. Yeah. A lot of big things. Making a change in color, adding color to your space, it is scary. It seems scary. Don't be afraid. <laughs> it, the stakes are pretty low. Yeah, you can redo it pretty easily, very yeah. inexpensively. And your, your sister that comes over, she might judge you for a couple years, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
You'll get over it. She'll get over it. Right. And hopefully she won't even say anything. And I'll be fine. You'll have a lot more fun. It's completely opened up. You know, for me, it's not so much lots of painting that I'm doing, but it's the decor that we buy. You made a joke, and then we'll wrap it up. You made a joke about the museum at my house. Uh I don't know if I've told you, but that's literally what it feels like. I collected all these ridiculously unique unusual to me. I, I completely don't think there's a lot of pieces that are like it. It's not like they're, oh man, one of a kind. This is priceless. Right. It's oh, not a no. valuable necessarily. It's just unique. It's unique. And I love that. Nobody else has it. I don't care if it's weird. We love it. We love the story of the find. You know, I could go on and on. And I think that's segments that we could have in the future. But just the fact that we have so much fun in the search and the stories that we have as a family of when we spotted something and somebody else was looking at it and we followed them through the whole store, <laughs> shadowing them, waiting for them. Oh, they put it down. They don't want they it. Grab it. Snatched it right up. <laughs> the fun of that. And right. every time we see it sitting on the shelf, there's a story. It's not just decor that we bought at the department store and put it's on a something shelf. Special. This is a story. This is something fun. So yes, decorating should not be stressful. There's ways around it. Definitely swing out to any Repco Light store. We've got color designers in the store who can help you with color, answer your questions, all kinds of things we could do. Color consultants at certain stores. We certainly have the west side and east side covered where people can, if they have to, come out to your house and help you choose the colors that you need, the best colors. There's a price for that. All of that can be worked out. Stop at any Repco light and start the conversation. All right, that's plenty. We've said enough. We're going to wrap this one up, take a break, and I think the next segment is going to be the history of drills. That's all right. Up in just a minute. Stick around. Well, Dan, one of my favorite things uh, to think about, to talk about, to go on and on with the children about is just <laughs> where things come from. I think there's so many things that we take for granted, things that we use every day that we have no idea where these things came from right? and why they exist. Like the little sound that blinkers make. <laughs> you know that sound? I dug into that. That was completely incidental. It was just right. in the manufacturer, but it worked to let the driver know that there's something going on. And some drivers never hear it. Right. right. We see those people all the time. <laughs> Every now and then I'm one of those people. <clears throat> but anyway, that is one thing that's interesting. You know, just anything that you use, refrigerators. There was a point when that didn't exist or anything even like it, and then all of a sudden, somebody came up with an idea, and and there there it is. And everything changes. And someday, I'm going to be one of those people that invents one of those things, Uh and I'm going to be rolling in cash. And that'll be the last time you're heard on the radio. That'll be the end. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be just taking my checks to the bank at that point. Anyway, you're listening to the Repcolite Home Improvement Show, sponsored by Benjamin Moore, and I love talking about that stuff. And we're going to talk about another one, and it's the electric drill. Mm-hmm. So I want to go through the history of the electric drill because I found it to be really, really intriguing. And it's, it's well, I'll get to it. First off, drills have been around for thousands, thousands and thousands of years. For example, I think like around 35,000 BC, people discovered the power of rotary tools like Dremels and things. Like <laughs> they figured out how easy that was to carve things with. Yeah, all their crafting dreams right. can come true now. Right. No, they found out that by taking a sharp, pointy stone and rubbing it between the palms of your hands, you could make it spin a little bit and you could bore holes in leather and things like that. I'm assuming leather. They're probably uh, making loincloths. Animal hides. Yes, yes animal right. hinds so they could make loincloths so they could go to higher fashion events and things like that. <laughs> and so it started with the little stone. Soon they made a drill out of that, which was basically just taking a stick and putting a sharp pointy, like a flint point on the end of that. Then they could spin that wood stick in their palms and make a little drill like that. So that's 35,000 BC, we figured that out. Around 10,000 years ago, the bow drill is developed. Right. You know, it's got like the, it looks like a bow and arrow bow. And yeah. It wraps around that stick. And then you just turn the bow side to side. Yeah. And it actually creates that rotating motion, and you can drill holes with that. It's kind of the first machine in that regard, or at least first drill machine that's working like that. 
So changes and developments happen throughout all the years after that. And eventually we've got all kinds of different hand drills that are developed. You know, think of the egg beater drill. Right. You know, that little, little thing. Break on it. And what's the other one? A brace. The brace, yeah. You know, all of those. You see them on Little House on the Prairie all the time if you watch that. I Charles, have one. I have all of those things. So you could play Little House on the I Prairie. I could, yeah. If you wanted to. All right. Anyway, think of all of those. They were all really important. But the creation of the electric drill is what we want to get to. And that's what changed everything. Now, we've discussed on previous segments on the show, one segment in particular, we talked about the history of the roller cover. And you weren't here for that, Dan, but it was a brilliant I'm sure segment. it was. Not because you weren't here. No, no. Possibly, That's hard to imagine, right? It might have been better because I wasn't here. But. Yeah, no, it was still brilliant regardless. Even if you had been here, dragging it down with all your power, <laughs> it would have been, been great. No, the, the, the invention of the roller cover was great and very intriguing because it created and launched the DIY painting industry. Until that roller cover was, was created, nobody did a lot of painting on their own. It was too difficult. Right, way too hard. So the roller cover comes around and all of a sudden anybody can paint and boom, there you go. DIY painting industry, Repcolate arrives and everybody's (laughs) life is better. Well, the same thing happens with the electric drill, but since the drill predates the roller cover. The roller cover was developed in the 1940s. The drill is much earlier 35,000 years ago. Well, the electric drill. (laughs) Gotcha. That's only a few years before that. But anyway, the electric drill is basically what launched the entire DIY industry. So we're going to explain and prove all of that. It's the first power tool. It was portable. It was accessible. And it made it so that anybody could use it, not just specialized laborers and not just in specialized locations. That's what the power drill, the electric drill did for us, the first power tool. And from that point on, we launched thousands, millions of DIY projects you know, think of all the home improvement television shows, the blogs, Magazines, this radio show, right, the this radio show. All of these things owe their existence, really, to the creation of the electric drill. So how did it come about? Creating the electric drill was a team effort. Now, it started in 1889. That's when we got the first electric drill. It was invented by Scottish engineer Arthur Arnott and Australian William Brain. Brain. Yeah, with a last name like that, he had to be brilliant. I would think. You have to be. Can you imagine being the dumb kid in school and your name is Brain? Uh, You'd have to change your name. Oh, man. It'd be merciless. (laughs) Find a really dumb school to go to. (laughs) That's right. Right. Okay. Now, finally, he's the Brain in that school. (laughs) Anyway, William Brain, Arthur Arnott, they create the first electric drill, and it was basically designed for mining applications. So they're drilling rock faces, coal shafts, things like that. Now, while that drill worked, it wasn't without its problems. First off, it was enormous. Like how enormous? Like enormous. Like as big as the room we're sitting in? I don't know. I wish (laughs) I had looked that up. (laughs) Let's just imagine that it was the size of a medium-sized elephant. (laughs) Okay. All right. A large hippopotamus. Large hippopotamus, medium-sized elephant. It's a huge (laughs) drill. Nobody's carrying it it around. Nobody's putting it on their waistband, on their belt, and climbing up a ladder. Nobody. All right? So big (laughs) drill. Once it's in place, it's in place. And that was one problem. The other problem is because of the brushes in the motor, the drill threw tons of sparks, Uh which may not sound terrible, might sound kind of festive, (laughs) <laughs> but the fact that you're working underground with all sorts of potential gases that are flammable. That sounds, doesn't sound good at doesn't all. doesn't sound really. good at all. That's a concern. They created a housing to go around it to kind of prevent that a little bit. Contain the sparks somewhat. Yeah, but since the drill needed to be ventilated as well, they couldn't be perfect in that regard. Yeah. And it really only takes one spark in the right atmosphere <laughs> to cause a big problem. That's so mm. a bit of a concern. Thirdly, the drill was electric, so it needed a power cable to, to, to make it work. And the problem is if the power cable is run through any sorts of, you know, puddles of water or whatever, which is not unlikely to think of in a mine. Correct. You've got the potential for electrocution. So a number of reasons that, you know, this drill was not ideal. And yet with all of that said, it worked and it got things moving. So 1889, first electric drill. Now we got to skip ahead five years to 1894. Now we've got Germans Wilhelm and Carl Fine. Got the Germans involved now. The Germans involved. They make the first portable drill. And this is the same Fines, the the Fine brothers that founded the Fine Tool Company that's still around today. And they added portability to the drill, and that 
kind of started to revolutionize the industry here. Not completely, completely, but big, big changes. I mean, now it's not just a hippopotamus sitting around. Now it's like a large raccoon. <laughs> and it, you can carry it around, but it's still not completely perfect. There were still some faults to it. And for one thing, it was crazy heavy. So big raccoon kind of a size, <laughs> weighed around 16 and a half pounds, and it wasn't terribly powerful. Now, the drill itself was attached to a motor that had two handles on either side. So picture this big kind of basketball thingy with two handles on the side. That's where you'd hold it. And then it had a chest plate you know, in the back of it to on push the against. center. Right. You would lean against it, and that would give it that added power. What if you're trying to drill the ceiling? <laughs> You'd have to, I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, that was a no-go. that get covered in the literature? No, you I at? didn't run into that particular mm, question. Sorry to ask that one then. I ran into a lot of issue, a lot of uh, comments in a lot of um, articles that talked about how this was a two-man drill. Uh, but I cannot wrap my brain around that. I, my gut is that that's a mistake. That somebody found, you know, and, and misunderstood something, and then they reported it, and everybody seemed to be drawing from the same articles. Oh yeah, to write their right. own articles. Okay, one like of those deals. Because I can't picture how this is a two-man thing. It's sixteen and a half pounds. You can hold the handles on both sides. All yeah. I could think is maybe that you need the second person to power it up just to get it turned on. Maybe you can't do that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that was a mistake. But anyway, that's the drill that the Fine Brothers came up with in 1894. Now, it's still not perfect, but we are getting closer. Now we get to 1910. S. Duncan Black and Alonzo Decker. The big mystery of this whole thing is what S stands for. Stu? Samuel. Samuel? I, you know I for guess, sure? No, because okay. it just sounds like an old-fashioned name. Yeah, I've been looking. I like Stu. Stu, Duncan Black, and Alonzo Decker. <laughs> they pool their money and open up a machine shop in Baltimore, Maryland, and they name it, of course... Black and Decker. The Black and Decker Manufacturing Company. Uh-huh. So 1910. By 1914, they're working and trying to create a lighter, easier-to-use industrial drill. So they're looking at the Fine Brothers drill and saying, we got to come up with something that works better, that's easier to use. Lighter weight, all of that. They're not having any luck. No inspiration is striking. And then one night, this is my favorite part of the story. As the story goes, as history tells us, they're sitting around the table one night in Alonzo Decker's house. And sitting on the table is a Colt 1911 pistol. You know, so classic Colt pistol right there. Colt Firearms is one of their customers. And as they're sitting there brainstorming this drill, trying to come up with an idea, they both happen to look at that pistol at the same time. And they have this eureka moment. And according to all the literature, it happened at the same moment. Neither one is the one who had the the idea. It was a mutual idea. They had like linked brains or something. Yeah, they're on the same wavelength. They came up with the idea that if they would make a pistol grip for for the drill and give it a trigger, everything would be different. So they go to work, they create a, a concept, and by 1917, Black & Decker releases a new drill with those features. It's got a pistol grip, a trigger for power, and the whole industry is now completely revolutionized. The design gains popularity, and from that point on, really, the trigger and pistol grip have been a trademark of drills from that point on, right? I think I can't think of very many drills that don't have that right. concept. There's angle drills and stuff, specialty things, but right. everything is like that. It looks like right. a pistol. As a kid, I would dig those out of the out of dad's tool pew, pew, room. Pew. And yeah, it was my pew pew gun. <laughs> and in fact, some of the early literature they called them hole shooters. Oh yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And I, I gotta think it's because of that idea. Absolutely. And you know, so from this point, that's really what spawned this whole like Tim the Toolman, Taylor the <laughs> can't you see him with a and with the drill, drill on in the pit. holster. It's got this cowboy feel to it. Yeah. All of that comes from this. So from that point on, we've had all kinds of changes that have come about since then. Drills were made smaller. In fact, quite after quite soon after this, they were made smaller. The housings went from steel to lightweight plastic. Uh, basically, they became standard tools in every house. Eventually, in the 60s, we got cordless drills for the first time, and now we've got battery-powered drills that last for hours, crank out tons of power, and they're available at reasonable prices. So, there. History of the electric drill. Next time you're jumping into a project around the house, remember how the mining industry, fine tools, Black & Decker, and even Colt firearms all teamed up to bring us the electric drill. That's cool. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Now, if you ever want to try one of those vintage, like, 35,000-year-old drills. Oh, yeah. Or even one of the original ones that Mr. Black and Mr. Decker made. Yeah. 
Let me know because I have all of those. You have like the old. I have the, the, a metal one. It's it's aluminum. Okay. Um, I'm not sure it's Black and Decker, but it's ancient. And I have a uh, the first power drill I ever bought was a Black and Decker, and it's probably now it's going on 40 years old. And, and still I still works. use it. I still use still it. Still use it. Do you still yep. use the stone? Between your hands. Hand between my hands, no. And in fact, you know, the other thing that I wonder about all this, um, what, how much progress was set back by people not finding their chuck key? <laughs> and then that was all solved when they came up with the keyless chuck. Yes. Why did that take so long? Right. <laughs> you would think the first time Mr. Mr. Decker or Mr. Black are looking for their the chuck key and they can't find it. You would have thought right, they would right. have come up with another eureka moment, but No. Oh, losers all around. And then the other thing that hasn't been invented yet, you were talking about inventing something. I think the electric paint roller cover. The electric? <laughs> hasn't been invented yet. I'm going to go to the drawing board over the course of this week and see if I can come up with a plan for an electric roller, roller cover. Yeah, I'm going to work <laughs> on it. But right now, it's all the time we've got. We're going to have to wrap this one up. If you want to catch it again, you can find it online at RepcoLite.com. And whatever you do today, make sure paint's a part of it. All of the RepcoLite stores are open, waiting to help. I'm Dan Hansen. And I'm Dan Altina. Thanks for listening. 